Well, I bet you didn't know. I bet you didn't know that that three-tone chime that identifies NBC, you know that one? NBC. Actually are the notes G and E and C, which is short for their parent company, General Electric Corporation. Bet you didn't know that. I bet you didn't know. Ladies, how many of you grew up having Barbies? Do you know her last name? I bet you didn't know Barbie's last name is Roberts. There you go. Another meaningless thing that you now crowd into your head. I bet you didn't know, to make things easier, when director George Lucas and sound engineer designer Walter Murch were working on the soundtrack for American Graffiti, that they actually labeled all of the reels of film R and all of the dialogue uh, pieces they, they entitled D, and then they labeled them sequentially, one, two, three, four. So when, when Merch asked George Lucas for some information, he said, I need real to dialogue to, and instead of saying it that way, he said, I need R2-D2. And George Lucas liked the name of that and penned it down for a project that he was working on in the future called Star Wars. See? Bet you didn't know that. I bet you didn't know that 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 book of maps you have is called an atlas. And you know why it's called an atlas? Because in the very beginning, on the cover of those books, was always a picture of Atlas struggling to hold up the world. Now, ladies, this morning, I want you to take a good look at that picture. Not that your husband looks like that, but I bet you're going to find some stuff out this morning you didn't know about how he carries that weight. We are presently looking and focusing on some life issues about relationships between men and women. And about next week, we're going to talk about sexuality and about how you deal with people who are difficult to deal with. And I want to let you know that next Sunday, we are dealing with sexuality, and I think you need to be here. Uh, It will be PG-13 in the respect that I will be very candid. And you say, well, what about my children? I'm going to tell you that for next Sunday... I would encourage you that you send your children to Inside Out to our children's ministries. And also, if you're concerned, if you have children in middle school, we will have a middle school activity next Sunday morning. And we will dismiss them out at the proper time, and they will be taken care of so that you'll feel free that, that you can channel through the information I give to you and present it to your children in the manner that you want them to have that. But I think you need to hear that because it's a big issue in our culture, as you know. And because the Bible deals with it, we deal with it. These issues that we've been dealing with are not new because Paul the Apostle dealt with them in the first century with his friends that he was writing to in the city of Corinth. And one of those issues he was dealing with, he discovered that his friends were neglecting their marital duties because they were, quote, too spiritual. And so he confronts that very forcefully, and here's what he says to them in 1 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, the first verse. Now, getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it, good, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. 
The husband seeking to satisfy his wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or not. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and it is, the purpose, it is for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again, for Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. In this whole context, Paul is actually saying to them, stop it. Just stop it. It's already been happening. He says, stop it. You are, at this moment, depriving each other of your intimacy. Now, when we look at that context, we say, well, he's talking about sexual intimacy. Yes, he is. But he's giving a broader understanding, which we discover in verse 4, when he says, marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. So last week we talked about what guys need to know about women when it comes to their intimacy, about who they are. Today, ladies, it's your turn to learn about the guys. Paul says in verse 2, that it is good for a man to have his wife and a wife to have her husband. The wording have is actually a possessive exclusivity. It means that a man and a woman come together. They, by the vow they give to each other, say that you are are exclusively mine, and now I possess you in that way. That in this possessive exclusivity, you and I can now become very intimate. And in this context of sexuality, that we can become very vulnerable to each other in that expression of physical love. But he broadens it out to say, not only in the bed, but outside, that when you stand before each other, there should be the stripping away, the nakedness of the life before the other, so that there is this vulnerability and the ability to be gentle with that person's vulnerability. And so this morning, ladies, I want, on behalf of the guys, to bring us to a place of vulnerability before you. I bet you didn't know this about us, that so often that man you love feels like a poser, someone who is an imposter. Do you remember the Super Bowl ad shown to us by Old Spice. Here it is. Hello, ladies. Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped using ladies' scented body wash and switched to Old Spice, he could smell like he's me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on a boat with the man your man could smell like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's an oyster with two tickets to that thing you love. Look again. The tickets are now diamond. Anything is possible when your man smells like Old Spice and not a lady. I'm on a horse. Look at your man. Back to me. Look at your man. Back to me. Sadly, he is not me. That's the problem. There is perfect, then there's me. I don't look like him. I don't have a voice like him. I can't give you the two tickets to the thing that you want to do. And I can't have them change into diamonds. And I don't even own a horse. Did you know that three out of four men 
feel very insecure about people's opinions regarding them? Did you know that we get it when Paul the Apostle writes these words to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 7? He says this, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. See, we understand as followers of Jesus that Jesus has this resurrection power. We know that Paul the Apostle said that we do not have the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a strong self-discipline. We know that we have this resurrection power that will help us become what we were designed to be in the first place, for we were designed to be adventurers. We're designed to be warriors. We're designed to be rescuers. We're designed to go rescue the woman. That is what we're designed to do. But unfortunately, so often because of the culture we live in, we spent more time viewing our fragility, how fragile we are as these clay pots, these clay jars. That we know that we're one mess up away from you finding out the truth of what we are really like. John Eldridge writes these words that every man feels that the world is asking him to be something he doubts very much he has it in him to be. And that is so frightening. I remember doing well in high school on my grades and, and, and my motivation behind that is I learned that if I had good grades, then I got praise. And so my motivation was to do well and so I thought I did good and I went to college. And I remember my first essay test. I came in with that booklet and they said, here are the questions. You have three questions to answer. You have an hour to answer them. And I remember looking at this thinking, I can't do this. I I don't think I can achieve this. I can't go through this. I remember the morning after Pam and I were married. And I remember waking up and she was next to me and I was looking away from her and I just said, God, what am I doing? I've got to take care of her. I can't even take care of me. I have a 64 Nova without any air conditioning. That's all I own. How am I going to take care of this beautiful woman who is so incredibly complex? How am I going to do that? I remember when our first child was born, Christy, and she was born about 7 o'clock at night, and After they'd all gotten taken care of, I went home and sat down in my easy chair about 11 o'clock at night, and I just reclined back, and I said, God, what am I going to do with this little girl? I don't know what to do. What have I gotten myself into? How do you take care of this baby? Do I have the ability? My first job out of college was I was a music director in a church. And it actually was my minor, not my major, and I actually had never directed a choir before, and now I'm in charge of this choir. They don't know that, and I remember going in and just remembering the mentors that I had and trying to to do the actions they did and say the words they said, and I thought to myself, if these people only knew that I'm only one note ahead of them, I have no idea. I'm thinking of a guy, this is a true story, a guy that, that was, had to teach a, a college class and he had, had really had not prepared for it. And so he basically just studied and then he'd go in and teach what he studied. And, and one of the students came up to him weeks later and said, I wish I knew everything you knew about this subject. He said, you will tomorrow. <laughs> you get to that spot and you say, I'm not what they think I am. Last Wednesday, in our viewing, about 180 of us gathered in here last Wednesday to view a a video 
or a, a DVD of Mark Gungor, and it, it's Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage. And if you're not part of that and would like to, please join us because it's just it's just incredible that the insight and and the humor. And so he asked this question last week. He said, when Eve was in the garden being tempted, where was Adam? So I, I want you to see where he was. He was playing golf. No, he was not. <laughs> Genesis 3.6. She also gave some to her husband who what? Was with her and he ate it. If you look at what's transpiring around here, we, we know that she's being tempted to believe that God's holding out on her. And during the temptation, the wording with, with her means to be elbow to elbow. She was right there. He was right there. Now, he is the protector. He is the warrior. He is the one who was told to take dominion over the earth. He is the one who is the guardian of the garden. He has this ability. And yet, as he watches her be tempted by this, this serpent, by this voice... He does nothing. He doesn't pull her away. He doesn't charge in front of her. He doesn't, he doesn't stop the animal. He could have cast the animal out. He had dominion over that animal. My dad grew up in Oklahoma, and he used to tell me that when they were in their teen years, they'd go find rattlesnakes and grab them by the tail and snap them and kill them. I don't believe him either. <laughs> but he said that's what they did. Adam could have grabbed this snake and ran it out of the garden, but he did nothing. Our first father failed. And it's very possible that we carry that in our DNA, in our heart. It's right there. And you know what he did after he failed? He hid, he covered himself, and he blamed others. And we're good at that. When we're trying to hide who we really are, we blame others. Or we'll cover, we'll cover with a facade, or, or we'll go hide and not be around. It is part of who we are. Three out of every four feel that incredible insecurity. You know, we as men, when we're young, have this question that we need answered. And that question is this, do I have what it takes to be a man? And what we're supposed to get that answer is, do I have what it takes to be a man, dad? But if your dad doesn't give you the right answers, as you look the way that he views you, as you hear his comments about you, how he deals with you, and even the time he spends with you, and you may be here today say, my dad never spent time, I don't even know who my dad is, I was raised by my mom. That question has got to be answered and we look to some kind of masculine entity, some kind of, of person who will identify and say, yes, you are. You, you are a man. You have this ability. It's within you. And we search for that. In the, in the Jewish world, the father would name the son and then he would bless him, say, this is what you will be. God did that. You, you know the story when, when Jesus is, is being baptized. He said, this is my beloved son. There's the name, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. There's my blessing. And you say, but when I was growing up, I didn't get a blessing. I got a curse. And if I had to give you a name that my dad would call me, it would be stupid or lazy. 
I, I would think of something I wanted to do, a dream, and he'd say, oh, no, you can't do, you can't accomplish that. Who, who are you kidding? You, you can't go there. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And maybe even his own absence in those most important times of your life just reiterated the fact that you didn't have any value. And so we carry that wound. Again, John Eldridge says, men either overcompensate for their wound and become driven and sometimes violent men, or they shrink back and go passive, retreating men. Often it's an odd mixture of both. I saw this play out this last week. I got this unexpected phone call from a couple that are good friends of Pam's and mine that don't live in this city and they're younger than we are. The husband has become has started a business about four years ago, and it has just it's just gone great. It's just been wonderful. In fact, they've just recently put a, a, a branch office in another city, and it's just great. And so everything's going good. The income's flowing in. They've got clients more than they can handle. And he comes to her and says to her, "This is happening way too fast. This is way too much responsibility. What do you think about letting it go and just walking away?" And she said to me, is that something men do or is it just this guy? And I said, to be honest with you, I think he's really dealing with this posing things. I know a little bit about him. And I know that in his past, that when things got tough, his parents just walked away. I said, I think he's posing, and I think that he needs to know that he has the ability, because if you watch him, you say he's got the ability, but he doesn't think he has the ability. He thinks he's an imposter. He doesn't know why it's happening this this way and why he has such favor, and he's not sure he can finish that. So how do you deal with that? Ladies, you'd be surprised what kind of input and support you are in this process. When Eve was created, God said, she is your helpmeet. And that is a really tough Hebraic word for us to really interpret. Helpmate, partner, and, and, and somehow it's been interpreted that it, it's like a, a, a person who, who holds the tools for the other person who's much better at it, and so they get to do all the good stuff, and so you just kind of are there to, to serve. And that's what it's made it look like for women. If you really break down that word, the word actually means life saver. That she is on this journey with you and that she is your ally, she is your life saver. Now watch what happens when Adam and Eve are there and she finds this temptation because the voice comes to her and says, God's holding out on you, you need to do something about it. She doesn't turn to her husband and say, what should we do on this journey? Because he's bailing out. He's holding back. He's not doing anything. He is just frozen. He hasn't taken his role as a warrior. So now she doesn't know what quite to do, but she knows that something must be done. So she takes it under control and does her own thing. There is a great danger in this relationship of husband and wife that if the man does not take the role and his insecurities overcome him and he doesn't move ahead, that you, lady, knowing that something must be done, you either demand that he moves, you manipulate him if you can, or you nag him till he does, or you just take control and do it yourself. In doing that, it is not life-saving. 
It is actually life-draining. See, I bet you didn't know this, that what a man needs the most is respect. The word is phobeo, where we get the word phobia, and it means to be in awe, it means to revere, it means to place on high value. Ladies, do you understand that when God described through Paul the Apostle what marriage is like, he told men to love you, but he never told you to love them? In fact, here's what he did say, Ephesians 5, verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must what? Respect her husband. So you say, well, well, I will respect him when he earns it. Wait. What is the man supposed to do for you? Love. Love. And, And what are you supposed to do for the man? Should the man love you only when you deserve it? That, by the very definition, is wrong because you don't love when you're, in God's way, when you deserve it. You love because there's no strings attached. It is the same manner with respect. You respect because that is what you are to do in the relationship, not because it's earned. Watch what God does. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to teach you about who I am because there's a lot of gods where you are, but I'm the real God and I'll show you how to live with this real God. And so he has to go through this process of figuring out who this God is. And this God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you even though you're in your your latter years. We're going to still give you a kid and it's going to be great. And you follow that and you'll see how Abraham just fumbles forward and forward in faith but just keeps fumbling and stumbling and, and it's a mess. But in the very beginning of the process, look what God does. God says, I'm calling you the father of many nations. I know you have the ability to do this. He gives him respect and says, father of many nations, before he ever gets there. That's respect. An angel comes to Gideon. Gideon is hiding. And the Midianites are surrounding them, and he's just trying to get some food. And the angel of the Lord shows up and says, oh, mighty man of valor. Yeah, right. It is God saying, you have what it takes. Even though you're not there yet, you have what it takes. It's respect. Simon Peter, when Simon showed up, his name name means wishy-washy, read. And Jesus says, Rocky. And this is the guy who will fail him, but he sees it in advance and says, I respect you, and I know that you have what it takes. That's respect. Respect. To respect unconditionally. So how do, we, how do we put that in living with each other and, and working it through our week? I think we need to understand that we need to respect his minor judgments. Understand that if you respect a man, he feels love. If you disrespect a man, he does not feel love. And if you cannot trust his judgments and respect them in, a, in the smaller things, then he will not believe that you can respect him and trust him in the larger things. So ladies, do you know this? That when you're not in the car with him, he actually knows how to get to places. He does. And even in those moments that you could swear he's lost, he will find his way because he's an adventurer. 
He likes being lost. Because he's conquering the map, the GPS. He's conquering it all. And when you sit there and tell him, I'll turn left here. This is much shorter. Go this way over and then turn right here. What's wrong with you? It's blind. Disrespect. Did you know that when the windshield wipers keep going after it stops raining, that he will eventually know they're there and turn them off? But when you say, what's wrong with you? They're going to warn the ripers. That's not the only thing he wants to turn off. (laughs) He sees that as disrespect. 44% of men say that they feel unappreciated at home. If you say to your man... Here's a task, go do it, and as he starts to do it, then you tell him how to do it. (laughs) It's disrespect. And it says, "Eh, I don't love you. If you give a task for your man to do, and when he's done, you go back and redo it, It's it's disrespect when he's not doing it right. But see, what you say to him by that is that you're not perfect yet, but let me show you how. So when you ask him to set the table and he puts the fork in the wrong spot, leave it alone. When you're real tempted to say, take this, we'll get there on time, I'm going to ask you a question. Is it more important for you to be on time to the party or for him to feel respect. If he understands that you trust him in the small things, he will have confidence that you will trust him in the large things. And and, and it's it's a thing you've got to work through because, ladies, your minds are not made the way that guys' minds are made. We talked about this the last week. So, one of the points of contention that we had in our house for several years was the Christmas tree. Pam would say, help me put up the Christmas tree. So I would put up the tree, and then she'd say, help me decorate. I would put things in place, and she would put them where they belong. I said, this is not working. But can't you see that? No, I can't see that. So we have come to this conclusion that we get the Christmas tree out, and she says, put up the lights. So I put all the lights in place, and then I say, that baby is yours. She does not come in and change the lights while I'm there. (laughs) I know she does, but I can't tell where. But it gives me a sense of respect. She'll walk in and go, that is perfect. Just what, and if she's lying, I don't know. But it makes me feel good. Respect the minor judgments. Respect him in public conversation. Criticizing or teasing your husband in public is deadly. It will only reinforce his feelings of inadequacy. And especially teasing him or criticizing him in front of his buddies, 
That's humiliating. When I was in high school, I was with a choir. We went on a choir tour in one of those touring buses. And, um, and this was back in the 70s, so they're not as elaborate as they were now, but we had a nice bus. And, and in the back was the restroom. And so we could travel, you'd use the restroom. And so the unique thing about this is that where the bathroom was, was a window uh, that went by the, the bathroom and over to the first seat in front of the, of the bathroom. And so you could go in to that bathroom and... And there the window was. So what we would do is this. No one would know this. And, and so we would go in, and we would unlatch that window just a little bit. Nobody could tell. We'd unlatch it. We'd go back out and wait for somebody to go in. While they were seated on the commode, we would wait for a truck to go by whose elevation was about the same height as that bathroom. Outside of the bathroom is the edge of the window that goes into the bathroom. We'd grab a hold of that and pull it open. And so the poor person in the bathroom would look out, and there's the truck driver. <laughs> They'd try to pull the window. We'd just keep holding it there and back and forth, and the truck would go, eh, 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 eh. <laughs> It was great. Now, let me tell you something. When you tease or criticize your husband in public, you just pulled open the window, and he can go nowhere. And he is humiliated. But let me tell you that when you affirm him in public, his confidence increases, begins to fight this, this sense of being an imposter. I can recall those moments that, that Pam would say in my hearing publicly, she'd say, Jack is so good with those kids. When he comes home, he just jumps down on the floor and plays bucker roadie. They'd get on my back, and I'd buck them off until they cried. <laughs> she said, he is so good. And I go, maybe I am a good father, contrary to what my high school kids would tell me. Maybe I am a good father. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear her just say something about, she'll say to somebody, yeah, last week's message, you get the podcast, because it, it'd be really good. And I think, well, Maybe, maybe, yeah, that, that's good. That, that builds confidence. Sometimes she'll say to somebody, he was so romantic. He came home, he had flowers, and, and he, he took me away for an overnighter, and it was just so romantic. It was so great. And I'm saying, baby, I got it. Still got it. It builds up my confidence. Ladies, you know what it's like when your husband comes home, and, and don't say you don't know this if you don't, but... He comes home with flowers. <laughs> you, know, you know that feeling that he, you either had or wish you could have? He comes home with those flowers and he hands them to you and it's unexpected. You, you know, they go, oh, and that, that great feeling. That's how guys feel when you hand him a compliment in public. Those are his flowers. He goes, oh, man, this is great. Affirmation is so strong that in the book of Proverbs, the seventh chapter, there's a story of this, this adulterous woman who seduces a young man, and it's not because of sex. It's flattery. Flattery is simply a seductive counterfeit for affirmation. And so she just affirms him because evidently he's getting it nowhere else, and he's drawn to her. Because we want to know that we're good. We want to know that we're a man. We need to understand that. And there's so many voices out there saying, look at your man, back at me, 
Back to your man. Back to me. Sadly, he's not like me. And you go, I'm not. Affirmation adds to the confidence bank of a man so that when he faces something that needs confidence, he can reach down and say, yeah, but I'm okay. She believes in me. If he does not get it at home, he will go elsewhere. So let me tell you a story. I t- I actually, I told this to Pam yesterday. It just happened this last week. And as I tell it to you, I know I've told you something similar before, so you'll understand it doesn't happen every week. The two times I told you before were in my first year of marriage, and it had happened once before by a woman who was proven to be mentally unstable. And then this one happened this week. I was at Moe's, and I was having my usual Mexican fix. And I was standing in line, and there was a lady about 10 years younger than me, very attractive, with two elementary, older elementary age boys. I was behind them, and they were doing my food. They'd done hers, and they somehow pushed my, my stuff up next to their stuff. And he said, is, it, is this for everything right here? And I said, no, 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 no. And I looked at her, and I said, unless you want to pay for it. And she laughed. She said, no, no, And I said, I know that. And so I, I paid for mine. And then she looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, but you're more than welcome to sit with me and my boys. And I looked down, and she didn't have a ring on. Now, she could have been kidding. My ego says that she wasn't. (laughs) But I got to tell you, at that moment, there was no temptation because I have this woman that I live with who I've been with now for married for over 34 years and known each other for like 37 years, this woman who feeds my confidence level. I have this woman that, that periodically... Most Sundays when I'm leaving the house early in the morning and I come here earlier than her, as I'm walking out, she says to me, preach the socks off them. So at some time, if your socks come off, just wave those. I want her to see that, <laughs> that it's working. But it says to me, baby, you can do this. Go for it. I try to work out about three or four times a week. And I'm not Atlas but I've got a friend who comes to this church who's been putting me on a program, and so I'm actually getting some nice bulges where, there's, where they never have been before and getting rid of some that aren't supposed to be there. And so I will come home, and every week it never fails. We'll sit down on the couch, and she'll reach over, and she'll grab my bicep, and she'll go, oh, baby. <laughs> now, I know what she's doing, and I'm loving it. And I'll flex a little. she go, oh, i got to use two hands. That is so good. Oh, and she'll just, she'll just go on and on and on. And I want to go, wait, I'm going to go pu- do push-ups. I'll be right back. Because it puts blood in there and up it comes. It builds my confidence. Because I'm one of those three out of four that I just feel like I got these inadequacies. And she's my cheering section. She doesn't lie to me. She doesn't flatter me, but she tells the truth and she says it in a way that just says, I can make it. Ladies, I want to tell you that that there's a way that you can treat your man in private that will give him confidence in the public realm. And I'll deal more with it about, ne- about it next week. But I want to just tell you, seduce that man. 
I want to tell you today that sex plays a huge role in a man's self-confidence. If he's having a horrible week and he comes home and you are there and you say, oh, I am so glad to see you, baby. And Barry White starts singing. Because there is this, this, this intimacy that, that when you are together and you say, I desire you by your actions and you, and you have this, this physical contact it builds his confidence because if, if he knows that, that you are for him and especially in that, that physical realm, he can face what's out there. It's the way God designed us. But, but if you're cold to him, if, if you are, are, are less than passionate about it, if, if he's got to say, honey, wake up, we're done, then we have a problem. Because then he feels like he's still a poser even at home. Finally, let me just tell you this. Respect him in prayer. There's something about a man and a woman who have made vows to each other, coming before the God who sealed those vows and listening to her talk to God about that man. To have her say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for this man. Thank you for the challenges he faces. Now help him through these things. To listen to her call out to God, it says respect. And that God, I want you to make him to be the man you've designed him to be. Not the kind of prayer that says, oh God, you know he's got so far to go. Would you just help the boy? See, that's not going to (laughs) work. And could you do it soon? I'm just running out of energy. I love it. I just love it when my wife says, and I hear her pray, oh God, thank you for this man. And I, and I know the journey he's on, so now give him success, give him favor. Then I know we're walking this thing together and she's my lifesaver. When Jeremiah the prophet was locked up in jail, God came to him with this message and here's what he said, Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I will answer you. I'll tell you marvelous and wondrous things that you could have never figured out on your own. Here's the deal. That when you're praying for your man, a man who so often feels locked up in his own insecurities, when you pray for him, God says, I will hear your cry and I will come to him with an understanding that goes beyond his experience or his own knowledge at that moment. I will show him where to go and what to do if you will pray for him and call out to me. Probably one of those times in my life that's so imprinted on my, my mind and my heart is when our, our son Dustin was just a newborn and, and he got very sick and in a high fever and he was in the hospital for days and we thought we might lose him. And all week long we're saying, oh God, please do something. And, and, and I'm scheduled to go speak at a Jesus festival about two hours away from where we're living. And it's on Friday at two o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, Pam, I'm not sure I can go do this with all that's happening here. She said, no, you're supposed to go do that. And I know you can. So I go, and I'm, and I'm there, and I speak for an hour at 2 o'clock on that Friday, and God just he gives favor, and, and it's a good thing. And I go back to my office to dump off my stuff, and there at my desk is a piece of paper. And it said something like this. Let it be known that on this Friday at 2 o'clock, from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock, a loving wife prayed for her husband. And it was sealed with a lipstick kiss. 
And I felt so incredibly respected that she believed enough that I could do it, that she called on God to assist me. Ladies, if you go to the GE building in New York City, you will see this sculpture. That's Atlas. Right there at Rockefeller Center. There he is, straining to hold up the world. If you will look beyond Atlas to the other side of the street, here's what you'll see. St. Patrick's Cathedral. If you will go across St. Patrick's Cathedral and into that cathedral, you will find an image, a statue of Jesus at about eight or nine years old. And he's holding the world in one hand. No strain. He's got it all. Your husband may be holding that mortgage, that job, relationship issues at home, the economic downturn, his own guilt, and he's struggling. I want to tell you that by your affirmation, by your respect, and by your prayers, you can help bring him to that place where Jesus holds his world in that hand. You are his lifesaver. I bet you didn't know that. Now, Father, I pray that for us in this place today we'll understand how you've designed us, that you will give us strength to be what you've designed us to be, and that today for these women who are in love with these men, they will realize the calling to which you have given them, that calling to, to, to affirm and that calling to, to edify and to be a lifesaver. And then for the men in this room, may they discover the resurrection power of Jesus that makes them the warrior, the rescuer you designed for them to be. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.